0: The UK enters tougher coronavirus restrictions, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. The culture sector comes in for censure in Slovenia and remembering the life of one of the United Nations founders. Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on The Late Edition, here on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Late Edition. I'm Tom Edwards, joined here in London by Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, and Monocle24's Augustin Machilari. Welcome both to the programme. Good to be back with you around the table. It's 2021. How's it treating you so far, Andrew Tuck, first of all?
1: Well, it's kind of okay when you're under your duvet, but when when you come out from your duvet, my God! I don't know. It's... um, it's intriguing. I, I wrote a note in the Monocle Weekend Edition uh, the other day just saying that yeah, you have to kind of slap yourself on the back and say well done for getting through the last few months. But we certainly have a few more to get through as we'll be covering in the show. And I think it's just exhausting for people. It's like you, you never know what's going to be the state of play at the end of the day when you wake up in the morning. So we'll be covering that as well. So yeah, I'm fine. I'm here. Hearty. Um, <laughs> Hanging and in there, uh, in there. And we're hanging in there. And when we say we're around the table, we should point out that one one of us, because to get us around the table would be impossible for three of us. We have Org in one studio, us in another, with a kind of like a mile between us. But anyway, better safe than sorry, as the phrase goes. Indeed. And that is the adaptability that we show so ably,
0: hopefully, here at Monocle. Uh, Org, from the other studio, <laughs> how's 2021 treating you
2: so far? Any resolutions? You, you're the sort of man who would have already broken his New Year's resolutions, aren't you? Yes, you you would be right ordinarily, but I've decided this year that I'm not going to formally recognise the start of 2021 until things are definitely better so i'm anticipating a sort of maybe a a 20 month long uh uh, 2020 and then just a very short 2021 this year um only a couple of months of that uh and i'll I'll, I'll circle back on resolutions then but for now i'm going to stay under the duvet a different one but under the duvet nonetheless
0: (laughs) everyone's welcome under the same duvet as i understand it Uh, well let's begin today with perhaps inevitably then coronavirus as we've been hearing From Prime Minister Boris Johnson here in the UK, in just the past hour, the UK is entering a new phase of lockdown. Uh, In Scotland, north of the border, it had already been ordered that people are to stay at home unless they have any uh, reasonable excuse to leave. Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, compared the situation to a race with, in one lane, the mutated coronavirus variant and in the other, the vaccine Speaking of vaccines, the new Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which came into use in the UK just today, has been hailed as a game changer, a new weapon in what will need to be bespoke regional vaccine strategy. Earlier, Monocle's health and science correspondent, the excellent Dr Chris Smith, explained, though, why despite the optimism, a universal rollout simply wouldn't work.
3: One has to be very careful about making apples with oranges type comparisons and saying, well, this works here. So let's just do this universally, because obviously it is horses for courses. There are some things that are going to work in certain geographies, certain social settings that are going to work much better in those circumstances than in other places. I mean, to take the most extreme example, if you take Pfizer's vaccine and transported that to, say, rural Africa, it would be absolutely useless. You'd have thousands of doses of vaccine that would immediately perish because there isn't sustainable electricity, there's not sustainable refrigeration, there's not good transport links to get it into lots of people very quickly. So you're going to need different strategies for different geographies. But Israel certainly are way out there. I mean, maybe 10% of the population of the country have had a vaccine now. Bahrain, also an outlier, doing very well. And the UK, probably because we were first through the blocks, in the UK to approve vaccines in the first place. So we stole the march on many of our, our European neighbours.
0: Dr Chris Smith there, talking to Monocle24 earlier. Andrew Tuck, the situation in the UK is obviously at a pretty sort of critical point. We were hearing from Boris Johnson just a, a little earlier this evening. I wonder though about this tension between the rapidly spreading, the, the, the variant coronavirus in particular, and the arrival of not one, but two vaccines. Is that tension informing... Public behaviour and informing the sort of the, the the dynamic as you experience
1: life here in the UK at the moment. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure that people are kind of behaving any differently because they think they might get the vaccine. Because for the majority of people, you know, so I'm in a category where I, I'm north of 50, so I will get it eventually um and i've looked on one of these um these um uh, online things which generates some idea of when you will get the vaccine so potentially i might get it in april it seems um but then i would have to wait now 12 weeks so that's may june july to get the second dose and then it takes between um roughly between 12 days and 21 days before you 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 have full immunity so i'll get partial immunity midway through the year but you know uh, I'm at the tail end of it, of course, but that that's quite a long time to wait. And then underneath me or in a different category, or any, everybody south of uh, 50, who, who who then come after that. So I know we're trying to be ambitious and positive here. But when you just think about those numbers, that really is pushing you into next year before mm. you you have herd immunity, before you have really everybody done. So the the ambition is to get anywhere between, it seems, depending on who you listen to, between 15 and 25 million of the most vulnerable people vaccinated once. And then if we can do them again 12 weeks later, that's fine. But getting all that first group done once. Now, that is feasible that you could do 15 million by Easter. And it's feasible that you could do you know 25 million, certainly by the beginning of summer. Then you begin to take out all of the really kind of the people most likely to die from COVID out of, out of the equation. And then you're in a much more interesting place. Then you can see some of these, these measures unwinding. But there are so many hurdles, so many complications. Just a simple thing. We're in the middle of winter. It, I see on the on my weather app, it's potentially going to snow on Wednesday. Now, you're an 85-year-old who's been told in London, I believe, the Excel Centre is where you go to get the, the latest uh, Oxford AstraZeneca um, uh, jab. That's the, the the first base that's open. Now, if you're going five miles in the snow to, to go and get your jab, you're not going to do it. So then we have problems of uptake and and all of these things so there are logistical things there are, <laughs> we're dependent on the weather but let's be positive it it's happening and you know although we're we, we always complain about our own government we're we are a little bit ahead of the rest of Europe if not quite way ahead of the rest of Europe in beginning to get this to be uh, rolled out and actually the like Brits without many things we're, we're oh, I don't know about that until it comes to the moment the vaccine is eroding that more and more people say if I'm going to have it I'm not sure what the consequences are I don't think there are any but lots of people saying I, I was cautious before I will take it so there are some positive things but my hell it's, it's, a, it's a long way to go and just finally you know, we do know now that you know track and trace is just, it's just not a weapon that's, that's successful at controlling this even isolation is very limited we know that in kent in parts of london where this new variant was was most strong during the last one month lockdown numbers continue to increase now some of that may have been uh, bad behavior uh, not abiding by the rules but we think that it just managed to spread very happily indoors with people so again lockdown isn't going to be the, the solution in the end either it's only this that we have to hope about. So let's hope they get it right, hope they get it right in lots of different countries, but uh, a long, long way to go and many kind of tricky weeks ahead. Well, all those twists and turns and all, I was going to ask you about this as well. H- exactly that, you know,
0: Andrew's just reeled off what half a dozen c- caveats and we heard from Chris Smith talking about the challenges just of maintaining the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine you know, having to be maintained at temperatures. Then there's challenges, corollary challenges of the out- the outside temperature. It may stop uptake. There are all of these barriers to the practicality, to to the logistic rollout. But do you all take heart nonetheless from from the arrival, particularly of this more stable vaccine, which is easier to move around, even if we just keep our, our sites within the UK borders for a
2: second? I certainly do, Tom. I, I feel only good about that, as I think everyone does. You know, the more vaccines, really, the merrier. But I have to say that there are some worries. I was reading around uh, Chris Smith's uh, comments that we heard a moment ago. Um, and he, just to use that, Africa is a case study. He kind of pointed out the logistical problems of distributing the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Um, I think that what's worrying, uh, certainly on the continent of Africa, is... Uh, that, in fact, a lot of the countries, there hasn't been a particularly joined up uh, bid for vaccines. There's been a heavy reliance on this COVAX programme, which is partially set up by the WHO, which is designed to ensure equitable access to the vaccine. It's a, it's a great programme. But, you know, in practice, this means that in South Africa, which is the worst affected country in on the continent, and which is obviously um, in the news here in the UK, uh, because politicians have been very worried about the, the new variant that's emerging there. There's only uh, enough vaccine purchased for 10% of the population. That's going to arrive in the second quarter of the year. AstraZeneca has no shots for the continent in 2021. Uh, Johnson & Johnson are conducting trials in South Africa and they're going to make 300 million doses. It's still not clear if there are guaranteed uh, vaccines for the continent. So I think what's, what's worrying is not just, not just the public health concerns, but, you know, COVID as, 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 an, as, as, as a real uh, accelerator for this engine of inequality, which I think is something that we've spoken about on the late edition before, and which is happening on both a micro and a macro level. Um, here in the UK, you know, we've seen service industry jobs hit the hardest, while uh, other members of the workforce have been able to do their business from home, have been able to keep their salaries going. Obviously, a lot of people have been furloughed. Um, But it's really the poorest who are hardest hit. And on a global level, it seems like that may be the way things are going. And, you know, I think we need to celebrate the arrival of vaccines. But I think more than that, we need to really, really um, press for the guarantee that they're going to reach everyone who needs them, not just people in in, in wealthy countries.
0: Well, Andrew, just a a final point on that. It's interesting, these these, uh, off-scene dynamics where there's Inequality of access to medicines and all this kind of thing. This is no new mar- narrative by any by any stretch. But has the pandemic exposed an even less joined up, um, unified picture around policymaking? Or actually, is that any surprise? You know, we we often talk about this. Countries and their administrations naturally, at times of crisis, tend to sort of draw up the pull up the drawbridges and look to safeguard their their own constituents' interests first. I mean, that's that's not really that surprising, is it? And, of course, the one of the impacts of that is that those most in need of, of aid don't get it. You know, just in the UK, our budget for four, overseas aid has been cut drastically, ostensibly under the pretext of having to, you know, save money because of the challenge of the pandemic. We shouldn't be surprised that that's the case, should we?
1: No, and no, I think you have to be wary of painting this as, you know, big, bad West, you know... Uh, Poor developing world. Because, in fact, there's a good story today that in India is one of the big produ- production bases for vaccines. And they've made it illegal to export any vaccines from India to all the neighbouring countries. They've said, OK, we're going to start you know, with, our, with our own people. So it is a bit of a natural instinct. I'm not saying it's good or, or it's right, but I think that all countries that have some pr- production capability are going to automatically begin to think about their, their own people first before they start sending it abroad. But I don't know, there, there are good people in the background you know, who are working hard, you know, the likes of Bill Gates, to make sure that you know, we do send vaccines to more developing nations and, and that we help fund them and make sure that they, that they have good access. But initially, countries that have access to production will be holding on to the, the vaccines that they can make. Indeed. Well, let's move along now to Slovenia.
0: The long-standing director of one of the country's foremost galleries, the Moderna Galleria, has been dismissed. Zdenka Badovinac has been forced out by the country's right-wing government. Earlier, Monocle's Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaney, joined us to explain a bit more detail.
2: After 27 years of service, she was not quite summarily dismissed, but it was
0: clear that she wasn't going to have her mandate as the director of the Moderna Galleria renewed and uh, out goes uh, Zdenka Badovanats after really gaining reputation not just domestically but internationally. She's curated shows that haven't just been seen in Slovenia or in this part of the world, but have also been shown in New York, for example, and taking art from this region internationally and also, you know, talking about what's gone on in this region, not just since the 1990s, but before as well. And that's really part of the problem. That's why the, the right-wing government of Janez Jansha has dispatched with her, uh, because they feel uncomfortable about anything which acknowledges life that existed before the independence of Slovenia. Guy talking to us earlier. Andrew, we've seen similar moves like this by other right-wing populist governments in Europe and indeed around the world. There, there are these f- pretty... Um, well, they're not, they're not really disguised. They're, they're pretty explicit attacks on the cultural sector, really. Um, presumably, we should take that kind of thing very seriously because it can start with cultural institutions and then it can be judicial institutions or parliamentary institutions. It, it's it, its something that we have to look out for and be we should be very concerned
1: about. And I think especially in... Countries where there is a strong nationalist story at the moment, the role of the the arbiters, the, the gatekeepers of culture, become seen as very powerful. So whether you're running an art gallery, a museum, a festival, suddenly it's kind of a political appointment. It is also in more liberal countries on the left. It's, it would be hard to imagine somebody being appointed, say, run uh, one of our big uh, arts institutions, being far right, for example. So, you know, of, of course, you know people's politics are taken into account before these appointments are made. And just at the end of last year, there was calls from the left for somebody on the right to be dismissed from um, one of the, the the museums in Hungary. Uh, this was the the Potofi Literary Museum where the, the guy who heads it who talked about the liberal Führer, uh, Soros, and, and many Jewish organisations said, you can't start using the... What happened to the Jewish people for your own kind of you know, pain, other people as having the same suffering as them? Because this guy had said, you know, actually the Poles and the Hungarians were the new Jews of Europe. You know, liberals were trying to expel them from uh, the bloc and from debate. So on both sides, you, whether you have people on the right or the left in charge of these organizations, what they say and do in these nationalist countries is carefully watched and monitored it's not good because you know the great thing about museums is if they if they are liberal arts that so they open up the whole of society they they engage with people at every level and the trouble with these these uh, people who run them on the far right, it tends to be that they want to have a very limited view of what culture is, and and again, it smacks of uh, years gone by when uh, we know what happened in Europe Europe with our big key cultural institutions. So, not great, not a great day. But um, the good thing about um, democracies, and Slovenia is a democracy, these people can get voted out, and uh, who knows what will happen in a a couple of years' time. We never thought Mr Trump would go, we never thought all sorts of things would happen, and then suddenly the world changes.
0: More light at the end of another tunnel perhaps, but Org, that is interesting, isn't it, this point about this idea of throwing a switch and just sort of implementing a more conservative and more nationalistic culture, just shifting the cultural capital. It it seems that these sort of quasi-totalitarian figures love to get the cultural sector sort of in their crosshairs. What, why is that such a temptation? Or is it because they fear what artists, particularly visual artists, can do in terms of spreading dissent?
2: Yeah, I, I've wondered about this myself. I think it's an interesting question. I think I think because we're, you know, here, here in the UK or in the, in the US, these two uh, nominally very advanced democracies, I think that art has uh, kind of assumed a, a role, and it's also tied to the commodification of art to the art market but it's kind of taken on this sort of slightly glass bead game-esque second life where instead of being a platform where people explore new ideas that actually go on to impact society to change the way people live it's more like a series of thought experiments or people trying to explore beauty or you know whatever the concerns of a given artist might be and i think from where we are it's quite hard to see the actual political impact of art beyond its power as you know an asset class which obviously carries its own sort of politics and, uh, you know, I guess the flip side to this is as someone who really does love art, it's taken me a long time to reconcile myself to that after graduating from art school, I can tell you. But I do I do think it's a, a really important mode of not just human expression, but also of communication. And also, as I say, of this kind of platform for uh, the cultivation of new ideas, new ways of living. Um, I kind of think... In a weird backhanded way, when a government like this recognizes its power enough to say, hey, we're going we're gonna to sack this sort of liberal uh, head of a gallery, replace them with someone who kowtows more to our line, that kind of does recognize the value it has, the way it can shape culture, the way that it shouldn't just be an ossified thing living in a museum, but should be a part of society and of how we live. So, you know, obviously I deplore the, the, the kind of political appointment of, 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 a, of a gallery director in this context. But conversely, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of compelled by the recognition that art is an engine for, for social development and change. Another optimistic viewpoint. I quite like when you guys peep out from under
0: your respective duvets, there's all sorts of optimism. Um, let's wrap up today's show uh, by talking about the passing of Sir Brian Urquhart, the second staff member hired by the United Nations, who's died at the age of 101. Earlier today on Monocle24, we heard from Edward Mortimer, former Director of Comms for UN Secretary-General Kofi Annan, who joined Monocle's Andrew Miller to reflect on Sir Brian's life. Andrew began by asking what motivated him.
4: I think that uh, largely um, the experience of uh, six years of war. He had an extraordinary war record in a quite a young age, including uh, an, an occasion when his parachute didn't open and he was he landed on Salisbury Plain with virtually scarcely a bone intact in his body. Oddly enough, in front of General Eisenhower, who was reviewing the exercise at the time, you know he was very very well aware of the incredible cost of war he was also in command of the british unit that liberated bergen belsen in 1945 and saw the appalling conditions resulting from the nazi atrocities there so i think he really thought the most important thing was to prevent having any more wars like that in so far as one could do anything and um, you know he had no illusions about the united nations he was always quite um, sort of laid back about it. He said, you know, well, three-fourths of the time, you know you're not going to get anywhere. But any little that you can do is worth doing. And, And, you know, it does work up to a point.
2: At that early stage, how important was he in turning the UN from an idea into a reality? Because presumably it couldn't have been that utopian a project, because, of course, a League of Nations had been attempted and it had collapsed. So everybody must have realized that it was no sure thing.
4: Uh, Well, that's right. And I think great uh, precautions were taken um, in drafting the Charter. For instance, the fact that there are five permanent members of the Security Council, which were considered at the time to be the five great powers, I think it was felt that um, one of the reasons why the League of Nations had failed was that America never joined it. And um, uh, there was, you know, great determination not to make that mistake again. I mean, Bryan, of course, was very young and unknown in 1945. So he couldn't really claim the credit for that. But I think what he claim the credit for it was um, that in 1956, during the Suez crisis, he played a key role in setting up the first UN peacekeeping force, which was the one in Sinai between the Israelis and the Egyptians. And that became the sort of t- template on which many other peacekeeping forces were based. And um, he played a very big role in setting them up. And uh, as you said, sometimes in commanding them. I mean, he had another pretty unpleasant experience um, when he was trying to do that um, in the Congo in 1961, when he was seized by the thugs of Moise Chombe, who was the leader of the breakaway uh, province of Katanga, and uh, very severely beaten up. Eventually he was brought back to Chombe's residence in Chombe's limousine. And um, he wrote afterwards that um, he was pleased to notice that he was bleeding profusely over the white upholstery. And that gives you a bit of a flavour of the man. I mean, no matter the appalling things he went through, he had an extraordinary sense of humour and was able to describe them very entertainingly.
2: And was, was he always a, a pragmatist, as you characterised him earlier, in terms of what he hoped UN peacekeeping missions could
4: accomplish as well? I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, certainly, you know, by 1956... I mean, the UN had already been through a pretty difficult time because of the Cold War. The first Secretary-General, Trigvi Lee, eventually resigned because he found the job impossible. Um, Hammarskjöld, who succeeded him, was chosen because he was thought to be a sort of completely faceless uh, Swedish bureaucrat who wouldn't cause any trouble. Uh, Luckily, that turned out to be completely wrong. And um, Brian worked very closely with Hammarskjöld, later wrote his biography, had a tremendous admiration for him. But Hamisham once said, the United Nations was not created to take humanity to heaven, but to save it from hell. I think that Brian would certainly have endorsed that, you know, that you, you cannot expect utopia to suddenly break out, and you know, when you're dealing with uh, countries as fundamentally opposed to each other as the United States and the Soviet Union were, you have to be realistic. And But you have then to work out what can be achieved with, you know, what are the limits of the possible? And I think he was very good at that.
0: Edward Mortimer there, talking to Monocle's Andrew Muller a little earlier. Um, Andrew and what it's quite the storied career, Sir Brian Urquhart. It's the sort of international diplomat, as you would almost recognise from the sort of pages of fiction almost. But I wonder, is it is that is his passing a little bit the passing too of, a, of an era? Is it is it the end of that kind of diplomacy done in that kind of way of institutions treated with that kind of reverence and having that kind of impact or again is it just a reminder of the power bodies like the UN and others can have if you get great personnel with a passion and a conviction that's shared by many different
1: stakeholders to try and make the world a bit of a better place well it's interesting to read lots of the obituaries about him and one of the words that kept on coming up was this was this word positive on positivity? He he remained throughout his life somebody who believed that the UN could do good and that people could be made to do good if you had the right institutions in place. And I, I don't know. We, we've gone through a terrible period when you know all of these institutions and organisations have been dented and bashed by all sorts of political forces. But he is a reminder that actually, you know, in times of need positive things can happen and although we've been questioning today about you know what happens around the covid vaccine and the, the the rollout issues and problems we should remember that actually around the world scientists came together through their organizations and their the the the, the bodies that they belong to and they did good in a very short time and actually uh, if you step aside from you know frontline politics it does feel that over the, the last 6 months a year that there has been a reinvestment of belief in some of these organisations, not all of them, that's for sure. But, you know, it feels that NATO will survive and will be renewed and and, and continue to be questioned, but will be here. It does feel that the, the UN has had some shaky moments, but that there are people on the sideline who want to see it reformed and shaped in a positive way, not just in a way that destroys it. So I don't know. We're, we're talking about light at the end of the, the tunnel today and maybe that, that other kind of cliche, you know, it, it's darkest before the dawn. And I don't think, I actually I, I think that's quite a good phrase for, the, for this time in, dark, in the darkness before the dawn because it does feel tough in so many instances but it does feel also that there are good people in place, people who want to see change and there is a the possibility of some kind of redemption for this year if we, just, if we kind of stick with these, these people who are, you know, are fearless and, 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 and leaders in their fields. Absolutely. Uh, excellent sentiment. I'll second that, Andrew. Um,
0: Andrew Tuck, thank you very much for being with us on The Late Edition. Thanks to, to Augustine Maculari. A big thank you to all our editors here today in London and at our outposts around the world. And, of course, to our studio managers, Louis Allen and Sam MP. I'm Tom Edwards here in London. Do be sure to join us at the same time tomorrow. But for now, goodbye. Thanks for listening.